We often go to a therapist or a coach because something is out of alignment in our lives. Are we dealing with something major like depression and anxiety? Yet it's less common to specifically see someone or talk to someone directly about grief and loss. It's not something that's always top of mind. If we don't take a look at our relationship with grief and loss, our worlds can seem like they're falling apart, collapsing in one sweep. One of our guests shared this perspective. Grief is love. It's how much we love someone who passed away. Grief is honoring the moment and people in our lives that were truly special, remembering that those people and experiences will always be a part of us. Grief is a natural progression of life. We can lean into this natural progression by taking everything moment to moment, day by day. We can accept our grief with love, with gratitude, and appreciation of what comes and goes. This is the Turning Points Podcast, a show about navigating mental health, sponsored by Point32 Health. I'm your host, Francis Lees. Today, we're talking about grief, how to move through grief, how to honor the many emotions that can accompany loss, and how grief can appear in unexpected places. First, I talk with Tracy Grant. She is now the editor-in-chief of Encyclopedia Britannica, and formerly she was the managing editor of the Washington Post. I came across her writing in the Washington Post in her essay, The Painful Truth About Caregiving. She wrote beautifully about her experiences with grief. For many of us, we think, okay, you lose somebody that you love. It's sort of like breaking a leg. It hurts the most in the beginning. And then every day it gets a little bit better. That it's linear, that the healing will be linear. And grief is anything but linear. Her experience with grief starts as she was preparing for motherhood in 1995. She was pregnant with twins with her husband, Bill. Her twins arrived early at 31 weeks. They were baby A and baby B in utero, but baby A, who became Andrew and was two pounds, 13 ounces when he was born at 31 weeks. Christopher, who was born at four pounds, 11 ounces, and who by comparison looked like a chubby-cheeked Gerber baby, he was born with two holes in his heart. And that is literally a footnote in the story of their birth. That's perhaps instructional in looking at how you process the events in your life. There are people for whom having a child born with two holes in their heart would be catastrophic. That's a very real understandable, you know, you grieve the loss of this perfect child. You worry, what does this mean for them going forward? So Andrew and Christopher were born when they were about a week old. The doctors called us in, my husband and me, and we were brought into this book-lined broom closet. It was claustrophobic. There were no windows. There were three or four doctors. So they called us in and they told us that Christopher, who at this point we knew had two holes in his heart, had had a grade one bleed. And bleeds are ranged from one to four, with one being mild and four being catastrophic. And I was like, oh my God. And I clearly was just not reading the room because <laughs> they didn't want to talk about Christopher. Poor Christopher was again a footnote. They wanted to get to the main event, which was the fact that Andrew had had what they described as a high grade three bleed. They said that we should be prepared that he might never walk, talk, 
he might be blind, he might be deaf. And my husband and I walked over to see them and I started to lose it. I started to cry. Not sobbing, not shaking, but tears leaking down. I mean, because here he was, he was in one of those clear plastic boxes and he was on his belly and he was thrashing about. He was a spitfire, okay? Christopher was the most chill baby and Andrew, and I say this with nothing but eternal love, was trouble from the (laughs) get-go. We're looking at him and he's moving, moving purposefully, almost like he wants to get the hell out of this. Why am I in a plastic box? Like, gee, mom, like, couldn't you get me a nice crib? You know, like, this is the best you can do. There's no sense that one side is weaker than the other. He's tiny. I mean, he's just so tiny. His first diaper, if you were to look at a Kleenex, it wasn't the size of a Kleenex. So I'm starting to cry a little bit. And my husband turns to me and says, why are you crying? Like, he's not being a jackass. And I said, like, he's going to have such a hard life. And he looked at me like he was just perplexed. And he said, look at that child. There is nothing wrong with that child. I don't care what they say. After the twin boys, Andrew and Christopher, were cleared to leave the NICU, the family returned home. The county where they lived sent over a physical therapist to work with Andrew as he developed. So she comes, she does this assessment, she works, notices some things that he's doing that she says are common, you know, preemies do this. And she goes to write up her report. She says, well, my paperwork here says he has a high grade three bleed. And I said, oh, no, that's, that's not wrong. He has a high grade three bleed. And she paused for a minute. And she turned to me and she said, Mrs. Grant, I've been doing this for 25 years. I have never seen a child with a high grade three bleed who looks like your Andrew. He is a miracle. Bill, my husband, he was basically right. There was nothing wrong. I mean, Andrew did everything a little bit later than his brother. You know, he rode a bike later. He walked and talked later. But, you know, if you met Andrew now and you just, you just, there's. Wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't know. So let me ask you, Tracy, when, when you saw, you know, your son in the NICU and then when you took him home and then you had the PT come in, did you ever have a chance to just process the grief at all? I think what I mourned was a normal first time motherhood. That was wrapped in the fact that the first year of their lives, there were two or three visits to an ologist, a specialist of some sort for one or the other or both of them every week. And like it never felt normal. I mean, being a first-time parent is overwhelming. And then you're doing it with two who are medically compromised. And so I'll tell you what that mindset puts you in. Like, okay, we've got, we've done our bad thing in life. When you have preemie twins and you are told that one of them may be profoundly disabled and you get through that, one, you feel enormously blessed, but you also feel like, okay, This is the bad thing that had to happen in our lives. We're good, okay? We survived this. We're good. And that's not how life works. No. About a decade later, life threw another curveball at her. Her husband, Bill, was diagnosed with cancer. So he's the love of my life. The boys were 10 years old. We had just come back from a week at the beach. We were getting ready to go to Yellowstone. And he had a dizzy spell one night that freaked me out more than it freaked him out or more than he let on it freaked him out. 
And he was ultimately diagnosed with stage four melanoma, which is skin cancer, the kind of skin cancer that is really devastating. He had three tumors in his brain, a mass in his lung. He was 53 years old. We had 10-year-old twin sons, like incomprehension, like just like this can't be happening. You know, it had a less than 5% survival rate, Um, but somebody had to be in that 5% by God. Um, I was a journalist. I was on the phone to NIH. I was on the phone to Sloan Kettering. I was on the phone to MD Anderson. We weren't going to go down without a fight. And he wasn't going to go down without a fight. But the reality is, over the course of seven months, this man who could beat my butt on a tennis court needed my help with absolutely every aspect of his physical care. Over the course of seven months, life went from being perfect, literally perfect, to being indescribable. How did you come to terms with the reality that maybe the best outcome is just making just a few more good memories together? There came a moment, there came a time when I knew that it wasn't going to turn out the way that I hoped, that there wasn't a phone call that I could make. There wasn't a specialist I could talk to who would have the magic solution. But it was very important to me that Bill not know that I knew that. In retrospect, I think he knew the same thing and felt that it was very important that I not know that he knew that. I think we were doing, we were being what the other person needed right up to the end. And I will just say people handle this differently. There isn't a right or wrong way to do it. You know, how much you tell your kids, Andrew and Christopher had just turned 11 when their dad died. Losing your dad when you're 11? Yeah, premature tragedies. So when you think about loss, like you said, it's it's such a unique experience for everyone. And there is no right or, or wrong way. And often when people go through these uh, sort of experiences, the acceptance of that loss doesn't necessarily come in that moment, right? Sometimes it's it's latent. It could be years. It could be months. You know, when did you find yourself accepting your husband that he was going to die? When when was that moment for you? The day he was diagnosed, I called my best friend and screamed into the phone, he's dying. I mean, the that the diagnosis was unspeakable. I found myself like you recalibrate what is acceptable. Like what would have been unthinkable eight months earlier? Like was like, okay, this is this is what Tuesday looks like now. And so even when he went into the hospital the last time, I expected that he would come home. And I think it was only in the last three days that I realized that he wouldn't. I mean, I believed that he could hear me. I laid with him the last night that he was alive. I could hear his heart beating, feel him breathing. I didn't think he was in pain. And that was comforting to me, but there was no point in that. And whatever the pain was that was going to come from this, I wanted his pain to end. And we were going to have to deal with the pain going forward. But pain without purpose, like, that's just wrong. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. After Tracy's husband passed, she raised her two twin sons as a single mother. They're now in their late 20s. Tracy is facing another moment of grief as a caregiver for her mother. But there are certain identities and roles that you had to shift as a mom, as a wife, and even your role turning into a caregiver for your husband and then 
later on for your mom? Do you feel that all the things that you had learned, that did prepare you to, for what was next for caring for your mom? Unfortunately, the answer is no. I mean, in some ways, so so my mom had a stroke. I describe it as tipping tipped the dominoes of dementia. Like she recovered physically, but but very quickly it was clear that that she had full-on dementia. But then the pandemic hit. So I literally ran out of the Washington Post, got on the last flight, flew into Chicago, told my dementia-riddled mother that she was leaving her home the next morning and coming to live with me. And she was like, no. I'm like, you don't have a choice in this. Like, I, I mean, it was just, and so she came, she lived with me in my house for five months where she was in the second floor master bedroom, this room, and she would come down for breakfast and tell me that the windows all had to be closed and locked because men were coming in the windows. And I would try to sort of explain, no, it's the second floor. Like, like that's the first thing. Like, you try to be rational, and then, and then you realize, like, you just lock the windows. It's like checking under a bed for your three-year-old to make sure there's not a monster under the bed or in the closet. It's the same thing. You just do it. It's like there's no real world. So with Andrew and Christopher, I was fighting for their lives. Okay? They were babies. I was fighting for everything that would come for the rest of their lives. For Bill, I was fighting for one more good day one more good week, like whatever we could get. With my mom, I'll be honest, I don't know what I'm fighting for. This is the thing that I did not fully understand about dementia. While she can't work a phone or know what day it is, she knows that she is compromised. So I took her to a wonderful neurologist And he said, Mrs. Ramsey, tell me what's happening to you. And she said, doctor, my brain is shrinking in my head. My mind is shrinking. The eloquence of that is breathtaking. But she wants to be who she used to be. She wants, and she knows she's not. And her life is so compromised that, you know, I, you, you try, to, try to give her moments where she feels like herself. So I take her to Mass every Sunday. She can say the order of the Mass better than I can, okay? Because it's somewhere, it's somewhere else in her brain. It's so, it's so deep. And I have a mom playlist. And if we're having dinner... Like I'll put on songs and she, she can sing all the words to these songs. I recently discovered that she's a Steven Tyler fan. She knows all the words to dream on. Okay. Like I didn't know that about my mom. You're almost rediscovering. I want the best life for her. But again, that it feels a little bit like it's in the rear view mirror. People talk about transitioning. I want to help her transition. And I hope that there's some grace in that for her. It's beautiful. I want my mom to have as many moments of smiles as she possibly can. But when her time comes, it will not be too soon. And I don't, I don't, like, I realize that that I'm not wishing anything. This is in. No, I, I, I. I'm a believer. This is in God's hands. But like, totally understand that though. I, I really do. I, I will. I grieve her more. I, my grieving will in some way end. 
when she passes. I, I, I'm grieving now, which is not to say that I won't miss her. Of course not. Or miss the moment, like, like you said, when she's really there, you know, when she's like just funny or a little bitchy or whatever. Like she's my mom. Like that's amazing. I will miss that. But like that really, that really ended almost three years ago. You just start to appreciate the really small things and you just start focusing on that versus anything else and let that be like the guiding post. Life is about the little things and, and life is really fragile. You can kiss your kids and send them off to school and they may not come home again. And so every day, every moment, it's, you just want to make sure that the time that you have, you haven't wasted any of it because you're not promised or guaranteed anything. And grieving is always hard, but it's a lot easier if you're not trying to answer what if. That's very true. Very true. Thank you, Tracy, for sharing such a powerful story. Thank you so much, Francis. Our next guest, Marissa Renee Lee, is the author of Grief is Love. She went to Harvard, started her career in financial services, then rose in the ranks under President Barack Obama's administration and foundation. But all the while, she was navigating the grief of losing her mother right before graduating Harvard. She's now a called upon advocate for coping with grief and the author of the beautifully written book, Grief is Love, where she blends personal experience with expert advice. So in your book, Grief is Love, you so beautifully describe your experience grieving your mother, a pregnancy, and most recently a cousin who passed away due to COVID-19. And you share research-based advice and wisdom in very honest, compassionate ways. And I love the title, Grief is Love, because that is what grief is. And so can you share a little about why you decided to name the book, Grief is Love? I lost my mom in February of 2008. And leading up to her death, she had stage four breast cancer and multiple sclerosis. So I knew she was dying. You know, there, there was no hiding from that. So I thought... I would treat her death and end of life the way I'd treated most things in life until that point by preparing for it. I did a bunch of research. You know, I read all the books. I had some difficult conversations with my mom. I had a spreadsheet with everything from, you know, songs for her funeral to what she wanted to do with a particular pair of earrings that my father bought her. And I thought that because I did all of that preparation and because I was honest about the fact that my mom was dying, I thought that would make everything easier on the other side. And then the day came and we were sharing a joke and she collapsed and was gone a few hours later. And I realized pretty much immediately that all of my preparation, while it is useful to help with funeral planning and you know, sort of end of life logistics, there was nothing that could have prepared me for the pain of that loss. And I think because I thought it would be easier for me as a result of the preparation, when it then was not easy at all, I spent a lot of time judging myself and questioning my feelings and really, you know, kind of beating myself up for being so upset about something technically so ordinary. You know, we all lose parents, right? And then one day I just, I kind of hit a wall. It was six months after she died. And I don't know what pushed me to this place, but I decided that there's nothing wrong with me and that the actual problem is around how we discuss and how we treat and what we've all come to expect about grief and loss. And so I decided in August of 2008 that I was going to write a book about grief that would help people understand what grief actually is. And that wouldn't just be sad and depressing, and that would become a New York Times bestseller. And so far, we've checked two out of the three boxes. And the thing that finally pushed me from this idea of a book back in 2008 to actually starting to write it in 2020 
was a pregnancy loss my husband and I experienced in late 2019. And, you know, at that point, my mom had been gone for over a decade. If you had asked me, I probably would have said that I was, you know, quote, over it and had moved on and kind of figured out how to live without my mom. And then this horrible thing happened to us. And all I wanted was a woman who'd been dead for 11 years. And so in that moment, I realized the grief that I was experiencing, not just from the loss itself, but the lack of care and comfort and support that I know would have came from my mom, it's all rooted in love. Like I got to have 25 years with this woman who raised me and instilled all sorts of positive values in me and supported me and cheered me on and just was a really phenomenal parent overall. And now she's gone. I decided there's no getting over that. There's really just learning how to live with it because the love that we experience with people when they're alive, like that doesn't die. What we do lose and what does die is the ability for our people to act on that love. But the feeling doesn't go away. So fundamentally, there's no getting over it. There's just love that you experience that sometimes is positive. You know, when my father says something foolish and my sister and I laugh at him behind his back and think of our mom, like, like there are those moments, but there are also moments that are really devastating when your people aren't here. And so I think if we are able to wrap our minds around love being at the core of the pain of grief, I think it makes it easier to live with. I love how you beautifully stated that because in our minds and just because of the way our society is built, that we do have a type A approach to working through things. And my humble opinion, to me, grief and loss is a spiritual process. It's a spiritual experience. It's a transformation of things, right? Even though the physical presence is not here, but the, the spiritual connection, like you said, the love that you have with your mom still exists. I've experienced quite a few losses in my life. And most recently, my brother was killed. And so when I went through that experience, oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. When I went through that experience, I realized I really had to change my relationship with grief and loss. Because prior to that, my father had passed away and I went into a tailwind of grief, just moved overseas and did a whole bunch of things to process that loss. I love how you, you section off your book to grief, to safety, to grace, because all of those things are crucial elements to the grieving process. And I love how you encourage people in your book to find their own way of grieving. Yep. So often advice around grief can feel very prescriptive, right? Like you mentioned the five stages of grief. So first of all, when we talk about society, at least when I talk about it, I just want to be clear with folks, you know, I'm, I'm mainly talking about American culture, right? And I think what is wrong is we are constantly trying to convince people that any time they have a feeling that they objectively judge as anything other than positive, that it, the impetus is on them to you know, pull themselves up by their emotional bootstraps and immediately turn lemons into lemonade and make it all look good for social media as well. And that's just, that's just not real. Like that's not, that's not life, you know, acting as though there's something wrong with grief, that there's something bad about talking about it, experiencing it, moving through it, et cetera. Like that robs us of some of the basic parts of what it means to be a human being. You know, we are born with a set of innate emotions, like all, all of us as humans. And more than half of them, you know, anger, disgust, fear are things that we view as negative or that we, we come to be conditioned to believe as negative. And I think we need to let go of a lot of that and just give people permission to feel whatever comes up around grief and loss and, you know, the death of a loved one. I also think we live in a society that is very committed to two things. One is white supremacy. The other is capitalism. And both of those things don't really leave a lot of space for feelings and for 
sort of the more gentle and emotional parts of life. And I think it's really important for all of us to recognize that while healing from grief and loss and, and, you know, figuring out to live with these things that happen in the course of our lives, like none of that can be monetized, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have value. You doing whatever you need to do to live with the losses and the challenges and the trauma that you experience going through life, like that has immense value. But I think because it's something that we can't assign like any sort of monetary value to, it makes it hard to actually, not just to do these things, but to be proud of yourself when you're doing them. If you just lost someone you love and you're taking the time to figure out how to navigate our mental health system, for instance, so that you can access the resources that you need around therapy and counseling. Like that's amazing and something that should be celebrated. But I feel like because it's not connected to any achievement that you see externally out in the world, we often don't value those types of things that are really important for living with loss. Yeah. I love how you you put that together because um, we're so outcome-based. Yes. And grief and loss, you, you can't really um, yeah. necessarily quantify. All you can do is just kind of move through it. And I love throughout the book how you mentioned there are times when, uh, you know, you were under the stairwell or you're just trying to have a quote-unquote regular day and the grief would just come and, and take over you. And, and you said in your book how the, the more that we bury the grief, the more, the more of it that we swallow right? The more of it we take on. 100%. Given the American society and there are so many layers to everybody's individual identities and how they, um, you know, express and portray themselves. And so you say that in the wake of your mother's death, uh, you took on the role of a strong Black woman. You said, quote, didn't want to inconvenience anyone with my feelings. How did you come to the realization that you needed to give yourself permission to sit with those feelings? Honestly, it wasn't until we experienced our pregnancy loss, you know, over a decade later. But I was also forced to just sit with the grief for two reasons. One, I was very physically ill as a result of the miscarriage itself, which kept me from, you know, reaching for my typical distractions and, you know, going and hanging out with friends and doing the things that I would like to do to just ignore my pain when I'm in pain. And then two, soon after the pregnancy loss happened, I was truly isolated, just like everyone else, when we found ourselves living in the midst of a global pandemic. And so suddenly I was processing both the loss of my mom, the loss of this pregnancy, and sort of all of the hopes and plans and dreams that we had for this future child that was never to be. And then also processing the grief that you know, I think we were all experiencing when suddenly one day in mid-March, our normal lives ended. And the only thing that I could do was sit and cry and write and, you know, just, just be. And it was pretty miserable. But that moment of pain and reflection and also just the commitment to healing and figuring it all out led to this book. I can relate to that so much, especially when my grandmother passed away. You know, when they're older, you kind of have an understanding like this is the process. doesn't mean it hurts less or the process is any easier. And then when my father passed away and I just kind of like was totally numb, but moving overseas, I had to be in that silence. And it was through that silence, all that grief from decades, just like you, from my grandmother passing and all these losses that I had just kind of rose to the surface. And it's through that, when we put away all those distractions, that we give ourselves the opportunity to just sit. And it feels really scary, right? And overwhelming, especially when all those feelings... Super uncomfortable. Oh, it's so uncomfortable because, you know, we're just so not used to being uncomfortable in that way when it comes to our emotions. It might be you know, put ourselves out there for like a job interview or something like that. But when it comes to vulnerability and expression of feelings, we're just not, we're not really good at it, right? Not that you need to be inside a competition. So when, when life gives us a curveball or many curveballs, whether we know about them or not, 
it really just takes us out, right? It takes us out. And I wonder, in your opinion, and sort of from your experience and even from your book, how can people sit with that grief or any range of emotions that you might feel after someone dies? Like, what is your best advice? My best advice, and this is why for me it was so important that everything in grief is love be supported by the leading research on grief and loss and healing and also race, because I don't want people to just listen to me. You know, I'm a girl who lost her mom and lost pregnancy and likes to write. I want people to follow the advice of the true experts, you know, the people who do research all day, every day on grief and loss and how to best cope with it. And one of the things that I found both through my research and my many years in therapy, it is proven that the best way to reduce the power of overwhelming emotions is by acknowledging them. I think we so often, and I know that this was me after my mom died, like we fear that if we acknowledge the depth of our pain, that that is what's going to overwhelm us, you know, that we're going to be taken out by it, essentially. Like I truly believed when I was 25 years old and just lost my mom, that if I acknowledged how much pain I was in, I was going to have some sort of nervous breakdown. But what is actually true is the opposite. When we acknowledge feelings, we reduce their power and control over us and we make it easier to move through them. So I have started as a part of all of my own grief work, this practice where I check in with myself every morning and every evening when I first get into bed. And I just ask myself, what are you feeling? Because that then usually lets me get at, if I need to, processing the feelings themselves. There are days where I get into bed and I just think like, what am I, I feel so crummy right now. You know, okay, why? Is there something that you could maybe do differently in your schedule tomorrow? Or is there something that would help you, you know, get some energy back, something you can do to take care of yourself? Regularly checking in with yourself and being honest about what you're experiencing, even if it's just you saying it to yourself out loud or writing it in a journal, or if you want to take it a step further, acknowledging your feelings to a therapist or a counselor or a faith leader do something to get it out of your body. Because when we try to keep difficult feelings like grief buried, they end up manifesting in other ways. They really do. And, you know, trauma gets held in our bodies and manifests into dis-ease. Anything that's being held within our bodies takes form, right? We're not processing our emotional experiences of life they lead to physical and emotional and psychological harm. They turn into anxiety, depression. So we're fine. You're going to deal with it regardless, right? Whether you're consciously aware of it or not consciously aware of it, you will find a way to soothe, right? Now let's talk about how people can come together when they heal collectively in their grief, something that we all have sort of experienced during the pandemic. And you lost a cousin due to COVID. And you're not alone in that grief. It's been like a collective experience. It's one thing that we could say that we have in common. And so many people have passed away from COVID-19. What can we do now to help our communities heal from this kind of grief? So I think one of the most important things that we need to do is acknowledge the grief. You can't heal from that which you don't acknowledge. And I think Unfortunately, because there are so many other things happening in our country and around the world right now, I feel like a lot of people have kind of forgotten about the volume of loss that some people have experienced as a result of the pandemic. You know, there is the physical loss with over a million Americans dead from one thing in just two years, each of them on average leaving behind at least nine close friends or family members, over 200,000 children lost primary caregivers in the pandemic. And then there's also just sort of that general loss that we all experienced and the collective grief of that moment, you know, loss of your routine. Some people experience loss of job, loss of plans and hopes that you may have had during like the worst two years of it that just never came to pass because of the pandemic. 
people who had to say goodbye to loved ones for other reasons and weren't able to honor them and celebrate them in the manner that they would have liked. Like there's grief in that too. And I think unfortunately right now we are not seeing sort of a national or even any kind of global call to action around grief and healing from this time. And so I think it's incumbent upon all of us as individuals to do what we can to support those who we know suffered losses as a result of COVID and also to just move through the world with more compassion and empathy. Because fundamentally, you know, no one's walking around wearing a t-shirt that says, I'm grieving. But there are a lot of people who are grieving a lot of things and a lot of losses right now. So I think if we all just move with the assumption that most people are grieving something, I think it will make the world a little bit easier for everybody. I agree. And I believe that when we individually do this kind of work, that is the collective ripple, right? It becomes a collective healing process for everyone. And so the more that we do this, the more that we can see the compassion in other people and know that to give them grace. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit more about safety. And you talk a lot about that in your book when it comes to the grieving process. How does safety play a part during the grieving process? Absolutely. So this is something that came up for me as a part of a reflection that I was doing, you know, as I was writing this book on the difference in how I approached grief after the loss of my mother versus how I approached grief after the loss of our pregnancy. When we lost our pregnancy, I told everyone, like anyone who I thought would even halfway listen I told them what happened. I told them how much we were struggling. I told them, you know, we didn't have a plan for what was next, but we did still want to be parents and we weren't sure what we were going to do. And I was distraught and disappointed and, you know, disorientation was setting in. I told everybody everything. And I did that because I realized that the way that I approached my mother's death, like I just, I couldn't approach this loss in the same way because carrying both the physical consequences of the loss and you know not feeling well and then also carrying the grief and then trying to add to that by carrying the shame of you know not sharing the grief and keeping quiet about it like that was just too much for me to carry and I wasn't going to do it and when i shared openly about our pregnancy loss i was overwhelmed with people not just offering their support, but specifically thanking me for my vulnerability and praising me for my vulnerability. And every time someone complimented me for being vulnerable, I felt really uncomfortable. I realized it's because I have come to recognize that there is a connection between vulnerability and privilege. And I looked at my life, you know, when I was barely 25, when my mom died versus 11 years later, I was 36, happily married, owned my own home, started a couple of businesses, worked for the former president, generally have a gold-plated resume, I think anyone would argue, and had achieved enough in life, particularly by the standards of whiteness and capitalism, that you know, if people wanted to judge me for being too sensitive or roll their eyes at another post about our miscarriage, like I realized I just didn't care. And part of not caring is privilege. Like I didn't care because I didn't feel like I had to care because of everything that I'd already done and accomplished. If somebody wanted to come along and say that, you know, they thought I was being weak or whatever, I didn't have to care. And that's when I started taking a look at the connection between safety and privilege and vulnerability and grief. And fundamentally, I realized in 2019, when that loss occurred, I was about as safe as a Black woman could be in America who isn't named Beyonce or Oprah Winfrey. I could do whatever I wanted. So what does that mean for grief? How do people really grieve and give themselves space and permission to be vulnerable around loss if they're not safe. 
I want to give a specific example of what I mean by this. A few months ago, there were these images that circulated all across social media and on the news of the backs of children in Ukraine. Their mothers were writing in permanent marker their names, their blood type, and contact information for relatives as they fled the war with Russia. And I saw these images and, you know, instantly you feel that grief, but there also has to be a recognition that those people aren't grieving because they're not safe to grieve. Like they're not safe, period. So they're focusing on their survival, not on whatever they need to grieve or to heal. And so I think for those of us who are privileged enough to grieve in the healthiest ways possible and, you know, to do things like access therapy, take time off work, even just have the time and space to be with our feelings. All of those things require safety and it's incumbent upon us who are safe to make sure that that safety and that privilege is extended to others. Because if it isn't, that means that healing is something that is really only possible if you're privileged. And that's just not fair to me. Well described. Because uh, in order to go through the grieving process, you really have to have a sense of safety to allow yourself to pretty much fall apart, right? And if you're in survival mode at that moment, then grieving is not even an option for you. And you know, I had talked about this when my son, he's older now, when I was going through the whole empty nester transition, it was like with all the tons of breaks, all the things that I was holding on to for the last several years was finally came to, to a halt because there wasn't a moment or time that I could just take to grieve because now as an adult, I'm better at that, but I just didn't have the tools or the skill sets when I was a lot younger to go through that process. I say this to anyone that's listening, give yourself the grace because there might be a time where you're not able to, to grieve because of all the things that are happening in your life. And so when that time does come, allow yourself to move through the process. And so, like you said, grief is not something we ever get over. We just don't. It changes it shows up and knocks on the door sometimes. It sits by our side and making breakfast in the most random moments. And like you said, grief is love. And so I'd like to ask you as we wrap up, what does it mean to you that you're able to honor your mother in this way and, and honor the losses that you experiences with this book? Oh, it's been super meaningful and very healing. This book required me to go back and relive the worst things that have ever happened to me. So I was forced to reprocess a lot. And as a part of my work to put grief as love together, I also realized there were a lot of things that I didn't know about myself and that I didn't know about my grief. And so it was helpful for me personally, even though it was also very, very hard. And I feel really grateful for the opportunity to tell my story and you know to share my mom with the world because she was a really wonderful parent. And I want people to know that if they're feeling some kind of way around grief, that it's totally normal. I redefine grief in the book as the repeated experience of learning to live in the midst of a significant loss. And I don't want anybody to think that I have figured it all out because I will tell you every time there is a major change in my life or you know, something challenging happens, even if it has nothing to do with my mother, I find myself having to process some part of my grief all over again. And so I really hope that this book normalizes grief as a lived experience for folks, not as something that, you know, has a start date and an end date. I hope that we can start to think about grief and death as ongoing transformative experiences, just like birth and life are. You never ask a parent if they've gotten over becoming a parent. Like You just expect them to adapt and change to the different challenges that parenting brings up over the course of their life, right? So can we do the same thing for death and grief? Beautiful. Thank you, Marissa, for sharing your story with the world. Absolutely. 
I hope these perspectives have offered you some comfort on your journey with grief, no matter what you are grieving. These touchstones helped shift my approach to grief. We can grieve what could have been, such as Tracy grieving the loss of a so-called normal motherhood. Grief is love. There's power in that phrase. Grief lingers because we feel intense emotions toward what or whom we are grieving. We don't just get over grief. Grief can arrive at unexpected times, and there's no wrong way to grieve. Thank you for listening. Marissa Renee Lee's book is Grief is Love, available on thriftbooks.com. Wherever you like to purchase books, I encourage you to check it out. Tracy Grant's essay is called The Painful Truth About Caregiving. You can find it on Washington Post's website. She's a beautiful writer. This is a very special episode. It's our final episode of the season, but we're not done yet. If you want to hear more conversations about mental health, check out our earlier Turning Points episodes. We talk about healing from trauma through mindfulness, teen mental health as it relates to the internet, and how to build a healthy community on and offline. And visit globe.com forward slash turning points, one word, for more information on mental health care and resources. Thanks to our production team at Pod People and Fuse, Amy Machado, Brian Rivers, Danielle Roth, and Michael Aquino. And special thanks to Point32 Health and the Studio B team at Boston Globe Media. Point 32 Health is committed to connecting the community to personalized solutions that empower healthier living.